0: And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said this, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake, my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. in the temple to hear him, this is the word of God, the all-knowing, soon returning King. That's who Jesus is. You know, I was looking at this passage this week, and this is this is what was happening for, with me. It, I was filled with such passion and devotion and an earnestness and prayer for our church in this way. It this was my prayer. This is my prayer right now, as we as we read this passage. I mean. The details, guys, of what we just read. This is my prayer. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us in such a way that it takes over our complete attention. Complete attention. That the vision of your glory in the person of Jesus would be so great. This is my prayer for us, guys. That the vision of your glory would be so great for us that there was not room for anything else. And that your all-knowingness and your soon and imminent return would propel us to live our lives seriously, to live our lives devoutly as we wait for you. Jesus is interested, and I think this passage reveals it, Jesus is interested in seeing our lives totally consumed and totally entrenched with heaven. Totally consumed, totally entrenched with heaven, and the focus of heaven, which is his name and his renown only. Can you see him? Do you see Him as as wonderful in this this way? Have you had that revelation? Do you see His beauty? Do you see His power? Do you see Him? Do you see His omniscience, His all-knowingness, His soon and imminent return, His soon returning reality and truth? When you do, generally speaking, many of the anxieties that we carry in our daily life begin to fall off. Many of them. Not because... Those things that stress us out are not worth stressing about anymore. Not because uh, the, the causes of our anxieties go away. Not because you won't suffer anymore when you believe in Christ. We know that's not true. Many of us are suffering now. Not because there won't be temptation in your life, but because what you will have found. When you truly see him for who he is, is an all-knowing, soon-returning Jesus, and it will captivate your life. And your anxieties, generally speaking, they fall away. You know, this past week, if you guys will remember, if you were in Georgia, uh, there were some pretty intense storms that swept, swept through our area. Um, and honestly, usually those things don't like, stress me out at all, but something about these, I was like, whoa, this is like a little tense, a little crazy. Um, so I came home early that day, just to be at the house you know, with the family as they passed through. Because it was about a two, two-hour window. And honestly, there was a general sense of anxiety and nervousness in our home. It's, it's true. Mainly because uh, my kids and my wife. Jesse gets nervous with, with, with storms. The kids get really nervous you know, with storms. And this is what happened on uh, this, this Thursday as well. Ezzie and Elisha specifically. Um, she was so excited for me to share this example. And now she's in the bathroom. Like while I'm sharing. And it's the intellectual world. They were walking around the house and they were looking out the windows and they were asking me questions about what was happening. You know, they just wanted to know kind of what was going on. And being her parent, I, I know where the questions are coming from. It's not this, uh, this ans- these answers so that she could just keep an knowledge and learn. She's not curious for the sake of knowing what's really happening. She's curious for the answers so that they might- can calm her nerves, you know, and-, and her sense of anxiety that she was feeling. And a lot of times the questions are hard to answer. Other times they're not hard to answer. You know. But I can say most of the time it comes from a place of desiring comfort and security you know, and, and peace. And on Thursday, I answered Elisha's questions and he crawled up into my lap and he just wanted to sit with me you know, as these storms passed by. And it was sweet and honestly a ton more glorious than I knew it to be in the moment. And there was a similar circumstance that happened probably like... I don't know, probably three or four weeks ago. You guys will remember for some reason this winter we've had thunderstorms. It's been interesting. And in the middle of the night, Ezra ended up coming, hopping in the bed with, with me and Jesse. Uh, and it's, you know, early hours in the morning. And we're laying there. There's this huge lightning strike that hits. And then you hear the thunder that follows. And she wanted to know so badly that we were safe. She just wanted to know, are we safe? And I did what my parents taught me, right? It's... You, you see the lightning and then you count the seconds to see how far the, th- the actual storm is away from you. So we did that, you know, and it helped her a ton so that she knew that it wasn't like right on top of us, the storm. It eased her mind because of how far away the thunder was. Um, her, but what was interesting is that her knowing what was actually occurring is, is something that comforted her, mm-hmm. you know. It comforted her just to know what was happening. And my kids are like this. Because it's human to seek answers in that way. It's human to seek answers to life's questions, life's concerns, the suffering that comes our way. Why does this happen? What's going on? It's human to want security and to want comfort and to want peace as we face all the different hard circumstances and sufferings that happen in our life. And if we're honest with ourselves, um, how we feel a lot of the times, even probably I would say for for me it's most of the time how we feel is not at peace. Mm -hmm. It's it's just not. It's it's not comfort and security. How we feel a lot of the times is honestly the converse of what Jesus is telling us not to do in verse 34. Verse 34, if you'll see it, it says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. Here's the reality. Our hearts are weighed down. Right now. Many of us right now, our hearts are weighed down. They're weighed down with the cares of this life. Jesus says, Don't be weighed down with the cares of this life. But the reality is we carry baseline anxiety in a lot of the things that we do. And our days are filled with questions like, where's the money going to come from? I hope my child's okay. I mean, I, there's—I remember being a first-time parent early on. i just walk over to Ezra and make sure she was still breathing. There was no reason why she shouldn't be. But I wanted to make sure, you know. Questions like, I hope I don't fail. Am I going to fail? It stirs all this anxiety, you know. Many questions and concerns. Jesus actually, in this verse, verse 34, it's so important. We're going to key in on this. So memorize it. Get it in your heart here. Jesus actually puts the anxiety of daily life in the same category as drunkenness and dissipation. It's equally damaging and equally harmful to those who struggle with the anxieties and cares of life. Equally damaging. And there's also, in in verse 34 here, you see a vicious cycle that's at play. Jesus says, Don't let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And dissipation is just partying. It's gallivanting around, basically forgetting your life, whatever you're struggling with, for this moment where you get lost in whatever it is you're doing. And it's associated with drunkenness because the partying usually comes alongside of some form of overindulgence so that we can forget all of the things that are really happening in our life. And drunkenness most definitely here includes what we would immediately run to, which would be alcohol, substance abuse of some sort, right? Maybe even sex. But the heart behind it is much more the overindulgence, the the partaking to to an unhealthy extent so that we can kind of numb ourselves and escape from all of the different things that face us. And ultimately what this is showing us is that this is not a life of faith, but it's sin and I said it's a vicious cycle because oftentimes the life that Jesus is describing here is actually the, we turn to these substances, to the partying, or to the drunkenness of some form, because we're looking for the answers to the biggest questions in our life. But Jesus actually says here that it's the participating in the practices that actually leads to your hearts being weighed down. It's the participating in them that causes it. So it's a vicious cycle. Let me paint this some, some scenarios of how this might translate to our life, the drunkenness that's really at the heartbeat of what he's saying, the cares of life, the, the dissipation. Maybe for you, it's been a long day, and the only thing you want to do is you want to go home and you want to binge Netflix. Mm-hmm. You look up, and your whole night is gone. You've been watching it for four or five hours, and you look back at a week's time. And you might not have the, the, the awareness to see it in the moment, but you've actually done this four, five, six times that week. I think that's kind of at the heartbeat of, of what it's talking about. Or maybe you've been arguing with your spouse or your friend or whoever's the closest in your life that's really bothering you, so you want, to just, you want to crawl up into the bed that night. And you want to just scroll the endless content of Instagram Reels. Don't tell me you haven't been sucked in if you're on Instagram. Susan, you made a great decision that you're going Great job. Or maybe your idea of fun is watching the game, right, with a bunch of friends and maybe having a few beers, but all of a sudden, here you are. And one night out of every month out has turned into three nights a week. And you're dropping the ball on your job, and you're, you're, uh, you're behind on your schoolwork. If you're in school, But probably more than anything – Your family is longing for you to be in the home and you're nowhere to be found. This is what it's talking about, being drunk, our hearts being weighed down. Or maybe you long to be married so bad it's so frustrating and you just can't seem to figure out what to do with all this frustration. You wrestle with these thoughts and these desires and you find yourself deep into some habitual practice of looking things you know that you're not supposed to look at. When you hear the stern warning of Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Man, we, oftentimes we want to think that Jesus is talking about somebody else and that's not really us. But when we hear some of these scenarios that I've just described, what I pray that settles upon our hearts now is that we're not actually that far off. We're not actually that far off from what Jesus is actually describing here. But in this narrative where Jesus says so many things, I know we covered a ton of content, and there's no way we're going to scratch the surface, but we'll try. Jesus says a ton of things here, good and hopeful things, but also some really hard things. The questions that plague us, the, the questions that we want not answer to, the questions that we don't have answers to that drive us into despair, that drive us to the dissipation and the drunkenness, drive us to the anxieties and cares of this life. Jesus answers these questions here. The deepest plaguing questions in your life are answered right here. And furthermore, they're answered throughout the Bible. Not in a way that necessarily gives us all the details of how our lives will play out. We we don't have those. But in a way that points us to the one who has all the answers. Luke 21 is a passage where Jesus is telling us a lot of details about what will follow his death and his resurrection and what will happen as his return looms closer and closer. And if you're a Christian here today, as we read this passage, this is the immediate question that filled me. I hope it was the same with you. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus is all-knowing and soon returning? Isn't it comforting to know that he knows everything about your life and everything about the world, and he's coming back? What Jesus does here, in light of his work on the cross and his resurrection, is he shows us we are secure in him. Secure. The peace and the security and the comfort that, as he was looking for in the storm, is the comfort that Jesus offers us right here. There's nothing outside of his power. There's nothing that's going to catch him off guard. You know, what may not be on the surface of this passage in Luke 21 is its historical context. So 40 years following what Jesus says right here, 40 years after it, the city of Jerusalem would fall, and all of this was fulfilled. All of it. You can go back and check the check the book and then check the uh, the, the historical details. Josephus is the one who wrote about it. Go back and look at this. All the details come true. This beautiful city, it says. In the very early verses here, maybe it might be the first couple verses that we read. Jesus says, you know, it's a city that's adorned with all these noble stones. It's a beautiful city. We don't even have a category to think about how wonderful the temple really was. We don't have anything that really tells us and shows us a time to be able to understand it. And Jesus says this city would be destroyed. And 40 years later, it was. Mm-hmm. Jesus knew it was coming. Jesus says there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be overthrown. And it wasn't. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. This this proves to be true. In 8070, 40 years after Jesus raises from the grave, the temple falls. And here, he's preparing all of his disciples that would be there on that day. All of his disciples who are seeing the glory of the temple. They're they're, they're looking at it. They're seeing the beauty of this thing. How in the world could this be brought down? And he's preparing his disciples here For the days that would come when his disciples, not only would the temple fall, but they would be persecuted. They would suffer at the hands of evil men things that can't even be named. Some of the people who were listening to Jesus' word actually would even die. They would die because of the name of Christ. Peter is an example. Peter, the tradition says, was crucified upside down. He He was killed for the faith. John suffered a brutal, horrible life of exile on the island of Patmos. They would suffer brutal brutal deaths because of their faith in Christ. Listen, Listen to what Luke 21, verses 12 through 17 says. I'm going to read it again. It says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, talking to his disciples, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, so settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I'll give you a mouth of wisdom. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But as we hear these words, Jesus does not only know what is going to come. All these things prove true. He's, he's, he's all-knowing. But he doesn't just know what's going to come. This discourse by Jesus must not just be located in its historical context, but it's Narrative context, the context of this, of this gospel. The next chapter, following Luke 21, so Luke 22, is the beginning of the events, the events that would lead to Jesus' death and ultimately, His resurrection. That's the context for what he's saying here. So what that means is this: Jesus not only knows the future, but is a future that, as believers, is secure in him. You believe that? At the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus has proven to us that he not only knows the future, but he has secured our future in him. I want you to think about what this means that Jesus is all-knowing. Let's think about the scope of it. i got two points about the scope of his all-knowingness. One is this. Jesus knows the future of world events as they relate to his finished work on the cross. Nothing surprises him. He looks at his disciples. He tells them hard things. He tells them that some of them will be brought before governor, government officials and authorities. He tells them, even some of them, that their family going to forsake them. I don't even have a category for that. Think about my family disowning me for the sake of Christ. But in the midst of this, these disciples do not waver. We know that to be true. Because here we are. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus as the cornerstone, standing 2,000 years later, they didn't waver. Why? Because they knew about Jesus. They knew that he rose from the grave and that there's nothing now that could rob them of their hope in Christ. Nothing could rob them. Have you been purchased by God in this way? Have you been purchased and experienced the unshakable hope of knowing God in Jesus? The Christian life is looking forward to a day where we will be with God, but the Christian hope is not blind. It's not blind. The Christian hope is not a hoping for the best. The Christian hope is secured because it's built off of very precious and very great promises. And it is namely that Jesus died and he rose again. And he ascended to the right hand of God. And he's going to come again one day. So Jesus knows what will happen. And he frames these things Events. The disciples have a framework. Not here, but in the coming days. The disciples have a framework to understand the coming and looming suffering that they would face, these world events that would play out as they relate to the death and resurrection of Christ. And it is enough comfort and security to make them endure to the end. Nothing that happens in this world can rob us of the hope that is in Christ. Nothing that comes your way. You may not have the eyes to see that. But in moments where you're struggling and the rubber meets the road, and now you're either going to hope in Christ you or not, if you've seen the power of the resurrection, you will see that this hope proves true. And it withstands even the strongest winds that come our way. Nothing will rob us of this hope if you've seen him and experienced him. So Jesus knows the future of world events as they relate to his finished work. But even further, this passage shows us it's not just about world events. Jesus knows the details of our suffering. We cannot imagine how devastating it must have been to experience the desolation, the suffering, the war that would have occurred around the time that the temple was destroyed. When you read historical accounts of this, it's it's hard, it's barbaric, it's gruesome. And what Jesus prophesies here is honestly one of the worst moments of suffering in the history of the church. It's one of the worst moments that, that anybody who has named Christ has ever experienced in the history of the church. I can say that with total confidence. But the fear and dread that such an event must have produced in so many is no match for the victorious hope that is in Christ. And how you know that is how well they suffered. Why is this true? Because Jesus has already won at the cross a cosmic war. Jesus at the cross has already triumphed over the powers of evil. Nothing can come against us that can separate us from the love of God. Jesus at the cross satisfied the very wrath of God. So what wrath could actually dethrone Him? Jesus at the cross reconciled us to Almighty God. Jesus at the cross purchased us and secured us in Him forever. And when I consider the work of Christ on my behalf, and I consider the that Jesus knows the details of my suffering that I will face, just like Ezzy, I feel comfort. I feel comfort. Not because it alleviates the suffering, but because I know He holds me in His hands. He holds my situation in His hands. He formed and He fashioned me and He saw the path I was going to walk and He took care of it at the cross. I feel secure. I feel a sense that nothing I face could ever separate me from God. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart In this world, you're going to experience momentary affliction, but it produces in us eternal weight of glory. And there's a security that as believers we can have no matter what kind of suffering we face because of two things. One, our suffering is not a surprise to Jesus, but it's actually worked into his mysterious plans. And we can rest in that. Why? Because he rose from the grave. Our suffering is not a surprise to Jesus. We know this. This passage reveals this. He tells his disciples that they're going to suffer. And what happens? Forty years later, they suffer. It's not a surprise to Jesus, but it's actually worked into the mysterious plans of God. And two, because he rose from the grave and because he died on the cross, Jesus is using our suffering for his ultimate purposes, for his purposes. So Jesus tells us tells his disciples what many of them would face here. They'd be persecuted and the temple would be destroyed. And all this described, it's leading up here to verses 24 and 25. You'll see it. Verse 24 and 25 is kind of where you see something transition. There's a seamless transition to Jesus talking not just about this moment where all of these events would take place in the world, but he started talking about how this is some of the first fruits of his return that is to come. It is as if these events in in AD 70 marked the beginning of what the world was preparing for in the return of Jesus. And according to him, even this early in the life of the local church, I want you to consider this, even this early in the life of the church, because here we are, right, situated 2,000 years later, it's a long period of time. Many Christians have come and gone. But even here, in the early life of the church, they were living as we are living today in the end times, according to Jesus. He says this this is the inauguration of the end times. In these times, there would be signs in the world of his coming, that 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 is coming. And then the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, would come in a cloud with power and great glory. Jay rightfully reminded me this week as we were talking through some of this message that in a sense, this is the entire Christian life. What do I mean? Consider what it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. It says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we have among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. And listen to what it says. And to wait for his son from heaven whom He raised from the grave, raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Christian life is this waiting in the end times, patiently expecting The day of the Lord, where Jesus comes and He judges the living and the dead and He crushes the head of the serpent forever. The Christian life has been waiting, the church has been waiting for 2,000 years and it will continue to wait until this day happens in all of its fullness. Jesus is what this passage shows us a soon returning king. The language of the Bible is that He's coming soon. That's a relative term. But in the grand scope of things, it is soon. It is imminent. It is upon us. And we should wait expectantly. And we are very aware that Jesus is going to return. But let's be reminded this morning of some of the things that means for us, that this passage reveals to us. Verse 28. It says, your redemption is drawing near. Jesus' return for us, Christian. For you, Christian. Jesus' return means our redemption. The new testament the new testament it paints a picture that's almost indescribable of what is coming for those who trust in the finished work of Christ. We will experience total redemption. Total redemption. Think about your life. Think about it. Think about the hardest part of your life. Think about the most secretive part of your life. The thing that man you don't want anybody to know about you. Think about the most shameful part of your life you're ashamed of to think about. Maybe it's so fundamental to who you are that you believe it about yourself. In Christ, those things will be redeemed. They will be redeemed. Jesus is going to be returned and that means our redemption forever. Matter of fact, everything about who you are will be redeemed. Everything about who you are. You will be so beautiful because of the work of Christ if you were a Christian that you will almost be unrecognizable because you will be totally redeemed. And all of the marring and sinfulness that marks our existence right now will be disappeared forever in the presence of God. It means... That we will not just be made better. It means that it is as if we were made new. Redeemed means a new heaven and a new earth. But but, but this this passage also shows us more details around his return. Verse 31. It says that the kingdom of God is near. This redemption that we will experience is near right now. There are times in the Christian life, and this is times I would call revival, uh, times that we're longing for as we fast and we pray. Where it feels like this reality is really close. Jesus throughout his ministry said, oftentimes, the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. Repent and believe. We have these moments where maybe we feel that closeness because his return is close and his kingdom is near. Here in verse 31, Jesus expands just our redemption beyond just our redemption to a phrase of the kingdom of God. And what he means here is he's saying this this time, this is a basic definition of what he means when he says the kingdom of God is near. He's saying that there's a time coming that is very close upon us where the rule and the reign of God in Christ will be felt and experienced in all of creation. That time is near. How does that prepare you for life right now? The time where one day, even death itself will bow its head to the name of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God and all of his fullness, even whenever the greatest powers that's ever existed in the earth will bow their knees to Jesus Christ and they will want the mountains to fall upon them and well at the account of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. That day is upon us, it is near. If it is near, do you live in light of it? Do you believe it? Do you live in light of it? Do you, believe in, do, do, do you live in light of the fact that verse 32 and verse 33 says that nothing that Jesus has said will ever fail? You know, this happens in our home oftentimes, and I cringe to think about it. But I feel like parenting has been me making a bunch of promises that I just can't fulfill. A good example is Elias, is, he, he's, he loves Pokemon right now. He's playing, you know, Pokemon 24-7, his binder's here with his Pokemon cards. And he's, we play this other game in our, in our house called Here to Slay. Anybody ever played Here to Slay, other than John? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, John play it. Here to Slay, it's, a, it's an amazing game, we love it. And, and my boys have basically taken Pokemon and they made that Here to Slay, because they want, they want it to be a Pokemon game. So Elias sets up the table, the last few nights and he's like dad let's play this game and you know there's a ton of stuff going on and like my heart when you're a parent you're just like yes I want to play with you you know but for whatever reason something's going on we got to get some, the house ready or, or something you know and I, and I say yeah we'll play as soon as we get done with this and lo and behold it's midnight by the time we get done with it and we can't play that night you know that's what I mean about the empty promises right that's not how we think about Jesus everything he has said Will not fail. Everything he has said will not fail. Isn't that reassuring? Really nothing that has ever come out of his mouth, nothing that we read the Bible will come to the end of our days and, and, and we'll see those things not true. That will not happen. In Christ, everything he says will be true. Everything he has spoken, every every sin that, that he has called to account, every person who has wronged you who he is called to account, every every world event that's going to play out as we see here in Jerusalem will happen. His word will not fear. Think about this in light of his return. Nothing that he says will prove to be untrue. Every word that he has spoken will come to pass on earth and in the heavens. last truth we see about his return is this. Every person will stand before the Son of Man in glory. Verse 36. Every person will stand before the Son of Man in glory. No one will escape him. Think about that. No one will escape him. No one will avoid him. On that day, every person will be held to account. Every person. Every thought, every word, every action will be examined against him. How it, how it finds its relation to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. And this is not a distant truth. It's so far removed. The New Testament would say, as I had already shared, that there is a particular lifestyle that results from our faith in the all-knowing, soon-returning King, Jesus In other words, we don't just wait, as 1 Thessalonians says, and live our lives however we want. Our waiting is a particular lifestyle. A particular way of living that doesn't make God happy, but because we have truly believed. A particular way we live that says, that's what I believe, and that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm trending towards in my life. A life of faith in the all-knowing soon-returning king. So what does that lifestyle look like? Here's a few imperatives. One, entrance yourself with heaven. I chose the word entrance because it's at the heart of what Jesus is really calling us to. In the whole passage, there's tons of details as to how he tells us to live our life. It can be summed up as entrance yourself with heaven. Why did I not choose that word? Because it means to be filled with wonder and delight, holding their entire attention. How do you wait expectantly for the coming King? Fix your eyes upon Him. The scripture says, from Jesus' words here, in verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, look to Him, because His redemption is near. What consumes your mind? What consumes your mind? If I'm honest, it's been Georgia football for two weeks. We just won the national championship. What stirs you up? What moves you? When you have truly received and taken hold of eternal life, as Paul says, then it's Christ. Not that you can't have a wonderful life. Not that you can't live to the glory of God in all things and encounter great food, great relationship, great activities. Rejoice when Georgia scores 65 points. All these things are good, guys. All these things are good. But the Christian finds his ultimate joy in Him. See, but Paul says to live is Christ. To live is Him. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing even in His sufferings that I might obtain. That's the Christian life. That's fixing our eyes upon heaven. The Christian thinks about heaven Often. Often. The Christian has seen a vision in Christ for what their entire life is about. Have you seen that? You see that captivating to you? When you look here in this passage that I don't have the uh, thanks for. Anyways, I would say that there is a sense that where it's what everything is about now. What really matters for us now is three things. One. The future that has been secure in God through Christ forever. When you encounter that and you know that, it's all that really matters. The future that's been secured in God through Christ forever. Doesn't mean you sit in your room and you think about it all day. No, it means you go out into the world and you do everything in relation to that. Mm -hmm. You work your job heartily as unto the Lord. Because He is soon returning. You go and you care for other people. And you give generously because He is soon returning. There's a sense where all that really matters for us now is one, the future that's been secure in God through Christ forever. Two, the joy of knowing that we will be with the lover of our souls for eternity. And three, that there will be a day when all sin, sickness, and disease will fade away. Are you living in light of this? Entrance yourself with this vision of our future. Raise your head like it says here in verse 28. Raise your head. What that means is get your attention. Jesus is returning. Fix your eyes on him. Jesus is coming. Get out of the weeds of your circumstances and the cares of this life. Get out of the weeds of the momentary affliction. Get out of the weeds of the suffering and fix them on the soon returning king. So the the imperative here of this passage is entrance yourself with heaven. But there's downstream four quick points. The sermon's just now starting, guys. We have four points. There's downstream four, four points of this. Fix yourself on heaven. Entrance yourself with heaven so that you may perceive the times. Verse 29 through 31 says this. Look at the fig tree. Beautiful parable. Look at all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see the things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. For the Christian, we have the answers and the explanation for everything that happens in the world. We have the answers for everything. It doesn't mean you know the details. It doesn't mean you're going to be able to, you know, tell us how the next election is going to play out, it means that the only question that really ultimately matters in this life has been answered, and it's been answered in Christ. Which dictates how you perceive everything else. And when we fix ourselves and we entrance ourselves with heaven, we now have a Christian perception on everything that happens. The heaven and trans-Christian is not swayed by the ebbs and flows of what life brings because their attention and their hope is not here in this world. It's in heaven. Therefore, the heaven and trans-Christian has a perception into the world that others ultimately do not have. And they're not surprised by the horror or the chaos or the hard circumstances that happen in the world. They're not surprised by that. We know that that's going to come. Jesus prepares us for those days. In this passage. But, though they know they are going to come, the heaven and trans Christian is equally joyful and hopeful that these things do not define us and that Jesus is soon returning. But entrance yourself with heaven, not just so that you may perceive the time, but so that you may endure through trials. Kind of related, right? In Jesus' words here, you see it verse 17 through 19. 17 through 19, it says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. He's talking specifically to the, the believers, the disciples there, who were going to face that around over the next you know, couple decades leading up to the temple being destroyed. But there's tons for us to see here as well. It's not just for them. The well, scripture wasn't necessarily written to us, but it's written for us. In Jesus' words here, we see why and how Christians have endured suffering and hatred for the name of Jesus all throughout church history. We see why right there. Just in those little words. Here's the three things we see. One, the Christian is prepared for suffering because it's the way of the cross. For his name's sake. This is the life we sign up for in Christ. A life that is in contrast to the world. A life that is hated by all for his name's sake. The Christian is prepared for suffering because it's the way of the cross. But the Christian also knows that we are secure in Christ and nothing will rob us of that. And the result of those two truths colliding with each other is endurance. Till the end of your days. Expecting the way of the cross for our life because Jesus went before us. And knowing that his, his death secured us forever in him means endurance for all of your days. When you're entrenched with heaven, you will endure trials. But three, entrench yourself with heaven so that you may be watchful. A heaven-entrenched Christian has a watchfulness in their lives. It says it here in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like trap Jesus calls us here if we have truly heard we've truly believed Jesus calls us here to be watchful in all the things that we do and what that means for us right now is maybe this verse actually does describe you in some ways it's okay Maybe you are drunk on some of the things of the world. The scripture says that the world, Revelation says this, the world's going to be drunk with the things of the world. It's going to be drunk where we don't have eyes to see it. It literally uses the language of drunk. And, and honestly, maybe that's you here today. There's things in your life where that, that would describe you. What I would say, get your eyes on Christ and you'll begin to see that you have greater priorities Then the momentary drunkenness, then the momentary scrolling, then the momentary pardoning, substance, eating, sports, what have you. You will begin to be watchful in your life when you see him, his all-knowingness, and his soon return. Finally, entrench yourself with heaven so that you may be prayerful. What I love about this passage is that two things can be true at the same time. One is that Jesus has won the victory. Jesus has secured us in him forever, and this life is going to be extremely hard. Those two things can be true at the same time. And what it says in verse 36 here, is it says, but stay awake at all times. What I'm translating that to be in the light of today is looking at him, fixed upon him, thinking about him, turning our attention to him in everything that we do. Stay awake. See him. Keep the lamp going. Keep the lamp burning. Don't let it die out. Stay fixed upon him. And, then, and it has this participle here of praying. Stay awake at all times. How you're doing it is you are praying that you may have strength. I love what we just, I love some of the things, you know, that, that's what we just pray for Kaylee and Michael in so many ways. Like, Lord, just help us make it to the end of this. Help us. Lord, our hope is seated in you. Nothing's going to rob us of that. Help us just get there because this is, this is hard. That's not foreign to the Bible. The grind and the struggle is not foreign to the Scriptures. But we can be hopeful and we can know that we're secure and we can also struggle and barely make it. But the the beauty and the wonder of the Christian gospel is you just got to make it. Make it. Stay awake. Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Because you're going to stand before Him one day and on that day, everything will fall. Everything will be okay. That's, that's something that nobody else in the world can say. Everything will be okay in Christ. As I said at the beginning of this message, my prayer is that, man, we would just be so radically oriented on the looming return of Jesus, entranced with heaven, otherworldly in her focus, zealous for the kingdom and its nearness in everything that we do. This vision of Jesus being the central guiding compass of our church. I want you to think about the radical witness of the church whose hope was tangibly, experientially, practically fixed in heaven upon eternity. Think about how radical that is to the world. Think about how radical it is for Solo City Church to be fixated right here in Gainesville, living an ordinary life, but tangibly, experientially, and practically fixed attention on heaven. That's a radical vision of life. The world understands life only with the blinders of the present and most pressing issues of the day. The church can be a counterculture in that she has the capacity to live lives that are oriented on Jesus instead of our circumstances. May we be that. When we do this, when this is what the church is, the world is invited by our actions and by our message into the greatest reality of the universe. The red-hot worship of the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world and secured our future in Him. Think about that. It's amazing.